Hello everybody, Andrew Gomison here with the Speaking for Him podcast. I'm not going to talk a lot for this intro because we do have a larger section of our Pilgrim's Progress to get to. Can you believe we are already in part seven? Uh, that's exciting. It's been neat to see the response to this uh, series of broadcasts, and I hope that as you are enjoying it, you are sharing it with others. That's how other people get to know what we are doing here on the Speaking for Him podcast. And as always, I would encourage you to leave your feedback of any form with the contact information that we'll roll at the end of the show. You know, one thing that would really help us is some more iTunes reviews uh, that will be displayed on Apple Podcasts. It would mean a lot to me as a content creator to be able to have those up, not just for me to read, but for other people to see as well, and it would draw more people to our show. And now I just want to take a few minutes to talk to you a little bit about what is going on. Well, I'm going to be very brief here. First of all, I am very excited that my sister Faith and her kids are here with us. Um, so if you hear any extra noise in the background, that is why. They are here for my sister Hope's wedding in a couple weeks, so we are very excited about that and just um, getting all the last-minute planning done to hopefully have a very special God-honoring time as we watch my sister and her husband-to-be commit um, their lives to God and to each other. The second thing I want to mention quickly is that we had testing week at the Potter's House High School and it went very smoothly. I'm very pleased uh, to work with the group of coworkers that I do. Uh, we all work together to um, make this uh, testing week a success. And I'm just really glad that we've been able to soldier forward during this difficult time and continue to provide a Christ Center education to our students. And then the final thing I want to touch on real quick before we get into this next segment of the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, which I am very excited for you as I have been each week that we've been able to share these with you. Um, the quality of it has really exceeded my expectations, so I'm just very thankful for everyone that was involved. But I wanted to take a few minutes to discuss one thing that I've been thinking about a lot in relation to uh, the times in which we live and what we're dealing with as a country and as the world. And of course, that would be related to COVID and particularly the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, at, at the current time of this recording, there are three uh, vaccines for COVID. One of them just at least temporarily got removed from uh, usage because of concerns with some of the side effects, and then there's two others that are uh, very uh, active in being used to vaccinate people against COVID. Now, I realize there are a lot of people on both sides of the issue about whether you should vaccinate, whether you shouldn't vaccinate, but I just wanted to share a couple thoughts from my heart about how I think we should approach this issue. The first thing that I would say is something that I've said a couple times or maybe even more throughout this crisis, I think I mentioned it on the podcast, and that is I am extremely skeptical of the idea that one vaccine or one treatment can be 
sufficient for 300 million people in our country. Everybody has different reactions to things like vaccines. And so the idea that one uniform solution for everyone uh, is, is possible or even something that we should expect is kind of unrealistic. Uh, the next thing I would say is that I believe that there's merit in both sides. I think you can say that the vaccine can be helpful without saying that everyone should get it or or can benefit from it. Because, again, I think we're all different. So I think that um, I'm very excited to see if the COVID vaccine will help certain people deal with uh, this virus. And if it helps to get us um, more open and, and get us uh, to be able to be with each other again, that's a good thing. But I also think that we need to respect those who choose not to get the vaccine. Um, I, I, I saw a friend post the other day that it was selfish for people to choose not to get the vaccine. But I think there are legitimate concerns with side effects and other issues that could come with the vaccine. And just a word of personal background um, in 2009, um, I was working at Guiding Light Mission, and we had a particularly tough flu season that year. Anyway, as a result of that flu season, I was told by my supervisor uh, that I could die if I didn't get the flu shot. Um, and she, I believe she had legitimate concern for me, but she said, you should really consider getting your flu shot because you could die. And... I had never gotten the flu shot at that point, and I still haven't. And by God's grace, I'm still here. I don't begrudge anyone uh, the opportunity to get their flu shot, but my um, secondary experience with the flu shot has been that, the, for the most part, the people that I know that have gotten the flu shot um, have gotten really sick from it. And so I have chosen not to get the flu shot. And I feel very similar about the covid 19 vaccine. I have chosen not to get the vaccine uh, because I've heard about the side effects and I don't want to risk dealing with those. Um, but I am concerned about my health. I am working on my personal immunity and I do respect those who have chosen to get the vaccine. So I think there needs to be respect on both sides. Um, and I think that as we are engaging in some of these conversations, we need to make sure that we don't become the thing we hate. Often, when we think that we are right, we can get um, very excited, and sometimes that excitement leads to hostility or inappropriate reactions to people that happen to disagree with us. So I just want to encourage us to uh, be supportive of one another, um, whatever the decision is that we make on a particular issue. And the specific issue that we are dealing with right now as a country and as a community is COVID. And so my hope is that we can come to a place where we respect each other's differences and know that just because someone 
decides to get the vaccine doesn't mean they're selling out. And just because someone decides not to get the vaccine, it doesn't mean they're selfish and don't care about others. I think both of those are false ideas and we need to steer clear of leaning too far um, to one side or the other on these ideologies. Again, our primary uh, goal as believers in Jesus is to love one another. And so my encouragement to you is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ well today. All right, well, as I said, it is week seven of the Pilgrim's Progress. Super excited to share this episode with you. And I once again have to thank some awesome people for their part in this production. So I'm just going to share with you our cast for today. Um, today we have, again, Craig Apel as John Bunyan, hopeful portrayed by John Wilson, Bayan's portrayed by Eric Buecher and Christian portrayed by Alex Jacobson with the additional voice talents of Richard Meninga, Matthew Gomison, Adam Knobloch, Andrew Gomison, Timothy Van Bruggen, and Laurel Dykema. And once again, my thanks to my editor, Caleb Thiessen. Uh, These episodes would not be what they are without you, Caleb, so thank you so, so much. Without further ado, here is Speaking for Him Radio Theater, The Pilgrim's Progress, Part 7. Now I saw in my dream that Christian went not forth alone, for there was one whose name was Hopeful, being made so by the beholding of Christian and faithful in their words and behavior, in their sufferings at the fair who joined himself unto him, and entering into a brotherly covenant, told him that he would be his companion. Thus, one died to bear testimony to the truth, and another rises out of his ashes to be a companion with Christian in his pilgrimage. This hopeful also told Christian that there were many more of the men in the fair that would take their time and follow after. So I saw that Quickly, after they were got out of the fair, they overtook one that was going before them, whose name was By Ends. So they said to him, What countryman, sir? And how far go you this way? I come from the town of Fair Speech, and I am going to the Celestial City. He told them not his name. From Fair Speech? Is there any good that lives there? Yes, I hope. Pray, sir, what may I call you? I am a stranger to you, and you to me. If you be going this way, I shall be glad of your company. If not, I must be content. This town of fair speech I have heard of, and as I remember, they say it is a wealthy place. Yes, I will assure you that it is, and I have very many rich kindred there. Pray, who are your kindred there, if a man be so bold? Almost the whole town, and in particular, my lord Turnabout, my lord Time Server, my lord Fair Speech, from whose ancestors that town first took its name. 
Also, Mr. Smooth Man, Mr. Facing Both Ways, Mr. Anything, and the parson of our parish. Mr. Two Tongues was my mother's own brother by father's side. And to tell you the truth, I am become a gentleman of good quality. Yet my great-grandfather was but a Walter man, looking one way and rowing another, and I got most of my estate from that same occupation. Are you a married man? Yes, and my wife is a very virtuous woman, the daughter of a virtuous woman. She was my lady Fanning's daughter. Therefore, she came of a very honorable family, and is arrived to such a pitch of breeding that she knows how to carry it all, even to prince and peasant. It is true we somewhat differ in religion from those of the stricter sort, yet but in two small points. First, we never strive against wind and tide. Secondly, we are always most zealous when religion goes in his silver slippers. We love much to walk with him in the streets. If the sun shines and the people applaud him. Then Christian stepped aside a little to his fellow hopeful, saying, It runs in my mind that this is one by ends of fair speech. And if it be he, we have as very a knave in our company as dwelleth in these parts. Ask him, methinks, he should not be ashamed of his name. Sir, you talk as if you knew something more than all the world doth. And if I take not my mark amiss, I deem I have half a guess of you. Is not your name Mr. Byans of Fair Speech? This is not my name, but indeed it is a nickname that is given to me by some that cannot abide me, and I must be content to bear it as a reproach, as other good men have borne theirs before me. But did you never give an occasion to men to call you by this name? Never. Never! The worst that ever I did to give them an occasion to give me this name was that I had always the luck to jump in my judgment with the present way of the time, whatever it was, and my chance was to get thereby. But if things are thus cast upon me, let me count them a blessing, but let not the malicious load me therefore with reproach. I thought indeed that you were the man that I heard of, and to tell you what I think, I fear this name belongs to you more properly than you are willing we should think it doth. Well, if you will thus imagine, I cannot help it. You shall find me a fair company keeper, if you will still admit me your associate. If you will go with us, you must go against wind and tide, the which I perceive is against your opinion. You must also own religion in his rags, as well as when in his silver slippers, and stand by him too when bound in irons, as well as when he walketh the streets with applause. You must not impose, nor lord it over my face. Leave me to my liberty, and let me go with you. Not a step further, unless you do in what I propound as we. I shall never desert my old principles, since they are harmless and profitable. If I may not go with you, I must do as I did before you overtook me, even go by myself, until some overtake me that will be glad of my company. Now I saw in my dream that Christian and Hopeful forsook him, and kept their distance before him. But one of them, looking back, saw three men following Mr. Byens, 
And behold, as they came up with him, he made them a very low dismissal, and they also gave him a compliment. The men's names were Mr. Hold the World, Mr. Money Love, and Mr. Save All, men that Mr. Byans had formerly been acquainted with. For in their minority, they were schoolfellows and were taught by one Mr. Gripeman, a schoolmaster in Lovegate, which is a market town in the county of Coveting in the north. This schoolmaster taught them the art of getting, either by violence, flattery, lying, or by putting on a guise of religion. And these four gentlemen had attained much of the art of the master, so that they could each of them had kept such a school themselves. Well, when they had, as I said, thus saluted each other, Mr. Moneylove said to Mr. Byans, Who are they upon the road before us? For Christian and hopeful were yet within view. They are a couple of far countrymen that, after their mode, are going on pilgrimage. Alas, why did they not stay, that we might have had their good company? For they, and we, and you, sir, I hope, are all going on a pilgrimage. We are so, indeed. But the men before us are so rigid, and love so much their own notions, and do also so lightly esteem the opinions of others, that let a man be never so godly, yet, if he jumps not with them in all things, they thrust him quite out of their company. That is bad. But we read of some that are righteous over much, and uh, such man's rigidness prevails with them to judge and condemn all but themselves. But I pray, what and how many were the things wherein you differed? Why, they, after their headstrong manner, conclude that it is duty to rush on their journey all weathers, and I am for waiting for wind and tide. They are for hazarding all for God at a clap, and I am for taking all advantages to secure my life and estate. They are for holding their notions, though all other men are against them, but I am for religion in what, and so far as the times and my safety will bear it. They are for religion when in rags and contempt, but I am for him when he walks in his golden slippers in the sunshine. And with applause. Aye, and hold you there still, good Mr. Byans. For, for my part, I can count him but a fool that, having the liberty to keep what he has, shall be so unwise as to lose it. Let us be wise as serpents. It is best to make hay when the sun shines. You see how the bee lieth still all winter, and bestirs her only when she can have profit with pleasure. God sends sometimes rain, and sometimes sunshine. If they be such fools to go through the first, yet let us be content to take fair weather along with us. For my part, I like that religion best that will stand with the security of God's good blessings unto us. For who can imagine that is ruled by his reason, since God has bestowed upon us the good things of this life, but that he would have us keep them for his sake? Abraham and Solomon grew rich in religion, and Job says that a good man shall lay up gold as dust, but he must not be such as the men before us, if they be as you have described them. I think that we are all agreed in this matter, and therefore needs no more words about it. No, there needs no more words about this matter indeed. 
For he that believes neither scripture nor reason, and you see we have both on our side, neither knows his own liberty nor seeks his own safety. My brethren, we are, as you see, going on the pilgrimage, and for our better diversions from things that are bad, give me leave to propound unto you this question. Suppose a man, a minister, or a tradesman, etc., should have an advantage lie before him, to get the good blessings of this life, yet so as that he can be no means come by them except, in appearance at least, he become extraordinary zealous in some points of religion that he meddled not with before. May he not use this means to attain his end, and yet be a right honest man? I see the bottom of your question, and with these gentlemen's good leave, I will endeavor to shape you an answer, and first to speak to your question as it concerns a minister himself. Suppose a minister, a worthy man, possessed of but a very small benefice, and has in his eye a greater, more fat, and plump by far, he has also now an opportunity of getting it, yet so as by being more studious, by preaching more frequently and zealously, and because the temper of the people requires it, by altering some of his principles, for my part, I see no reason but a man may do this, provided he has a call, Aye, and more a great deal besides, and yet be an honest man. For why, one, his desire of a greater benefice is lawful. This cannot be contradicted, since it is set before him by providence. So then, he may get it, if he can, making no question for conscience' sake. Two, besides, his desire after that benefice makes him more studious, more zealous, preacher, etc., and so makes him a better man, yea, makes him better improve his parts, which is according to the mind of God. Three, now as for his complying with the temper of his people, by dissenting to serve them, some of his principles, this argueth, one, that he is of a self-denying temper, two, of a sweet and winning deportment, and so three, more fit for the ministerial function. So, for I conclude that a minister that changes a small for a great should not, for so doing, be judged as covetous, but rather, since he is improved in his parts and industry thereby, be counted as one that pursues his call and the opportunity put into his hand to do good. And now, to the second part of the question, which concerns the tradesmen you mentioned, suppose such as one to have but a poor employ in the world, but by becoming religious, he may mend his market, perhaps get a rich wife, or more and far better customers to his shop. For my part, I see no reason but that this may be lawfully done. For why, one, to become religious is a virtue, by what means soever a man becomes so. Two, nor is it unlawful to get a rich wife, or more custom to my shop. And three, besides the man gets these by becoming religious, it's that which is good, of them that are good, by becoming good himself. So then here is a good wife, good customers, and good gain, and all these by becoming religious, which is good. Therefore, to become religious, to get all these, is good and profitable design. This answer, thus made by Mr. Moneylove to Mr. Byan's question, was highly applauded by them all. 
Wherefore, they concluded, upon the whole, that it was most wholesome and advantageous. And because, as they thought, no man was able to contradict it, and because Christian and hopeful were yet within call, they jointly agreed to assault them with the question as soon as they overtook them, and the rather because they had opposed Mr. Byans before. So they called after them, and they stopped and stood till they had come up to them. But they concluded as they went that not Mr. Byans, but old Mr. Hold the World should propound the question to them, because, as they supposed, their answer to him would be without the remainder of the heat that was kindled between Mr. Byans and them at their parting a little before. So they came up to each other, and after a short salutation, Mr. Hold the World propounded the question to Christian and his fellow and bid them to answer if they could. Even a babe in religion may answer ten thousand such questions. For if it be unlawful to follow Christ for loaves, as it is in the sixth of John, how much more abominable is it to make of him and religion a stalking horse, to get and enjoy the world? Nor do we find any other than heathens, hypocrites, devils, and witches that are of this opinion. One, heathens, for when Hamor and Shechem had a mind to the daughter and cattle of Jacob, and saw that there was no ways for them to come at them but by becoming circumcised, they say to their companions, If every male of us be circumcised as they are circumcised, shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Their daughters and their cattle that were which they sought to obtain, and their religion, the stalking horse they made use of to come at them, read the whole story. Two, the hypocritical Pharisees were also of this religion. Long prayers were their pretense, but to get widows' houses was their intent, and greater damnation was from God their judgment. Luke chapter 20, verses 46 and 47. Three, Judas the devil was also of this religion. He was religious for the bag, that he might be possessed of what was therein. But he was lost, cast away in the very son of perdition. Four, Simon the witch was of this religion too, for he would have had the Holy Ghost that he might have got money therewith, and his sentence from Peter's mouth was according. Five, neither will it out of my mind, but that that man that takes up religion for the world will throw away religion for the world. For so surely as Judas designed the world in becoming religious, so surely did he also sell religion and his master for the same. To answer the question, therefore, affirmatively, as I perceive you have done, and to accept of as authentic such answer is both heathenish, hypocritical, and devilish, and your reward will be according to your works. Then they stood staring one upon another, but had not wherewith to answer Christian. Hopeful also approved of the soundness of Christian's answer, so there was a great silence among them. Mr. Byens and his company were also staggered and kept behind that Christian and hopeful might outgo them. These men cannot stand before the sentence of men. What will they do with the sentence of God? And if they are mute when dealt with by vessels of clay, what will they do when they shall be rebuked by flames of a devouring fire? Then Christian and hopeful outwent them again, and went till they came at a delicate plain called Ease, where they went with much content, but that plain was but narrow, so they were quickly got over it. 
Now, at the further side of that plain was a little hill called Lucre, and in that hill was silver mine, which some of them that had formerly gone that way, because of the rarity of it, had turned aside to see. But going too near the brink of the pit, the ground being deceitful under them broke, and they were slain. Some also had been maimed there, and could not to their dying day be their own men again. Then I saw in my dream that a little off the road, over against the silver mine, stood Demas, gentleman-like, to call to passengers to come and see, who said to Christian and his fellow, Oh, turn aside hither, and I will show you a thing. What thing so deserving as to turn us out of the way to see it? Here is a silver mine, and some digging in it for treasure. If you come with a little pains, you may richly provide for yourselves. Let us go see. Not I. I have heard of this place before now, and how many have there been slain. And besides that, treasure is a snare to those that seek it, for it hindereth them in their pilgrimage. Is not the place dangerous? Hath it not hindered many in their pilgrimage? Not very dangerous, except to those who are careless. Let us not stir a step, but still keep on our way. I will warrant you, when Byans comes up, if he hath the same invitation as we, he will turn in thither to see. No doubt thereof, for his principles lead him that way, and a hundred to one, but he dies there. But will you not come over and see? Demas, thou art an enemy to the right ways of the Lord of this way, and hast been already condemned for thine own turning aside by one of his majesty's judges. And why seekest thou to bring us into the like condemnation? Besides, if we all turn aside, our Lord the king will certainly hear thereof, and will there put us to shame, where we should stand with boldness before him. I also am one of your fraternity. If you but tarry a little, I will walk with you. What is thy name? Is it not the same by which I have called thee? Yes, my name is Demas. I am a son of Abraham. I know you. Gehazi was your great-grandfather, and Judas your father, and you have trod in their steps. It is but a devilish prank that thou usest. Thy father was hanged for a traitor, and thou deservest no better reward. Assure thyself that when we come to the king, we will do him word of this thy behavior. By this time, by no ends and his companions, were come again within sight. And they, at the first beck, went over to Demas. Now whether they fell into the pit by looking over the brink thereof, or whether they went down to dig, whether they were smothered in the bottom by the damps that commonly arise, of these things I'm not certain, but this I observed, that they were never seen again in the way. Then sang Christian, Bians and silver Demas both agree, one calls, the other runs, that he may be a sharer in his lucre. So these things do take up in this world and no further go. Now I saw that just on the other side of this plain, the pilgrims came to a place where stood an old monument hard by the highway side, at the sight of which they were both concerned because of the strangeness of the form thereof. For it seemed to them as if it had been a woman transformed into the shape of a pillar. Here, therefore, they stood looking and looking upon it. 
but could not for a time tell what they should make of it. At last, Hopeful espied, written above the head thereof, a writing in an unusual hand. But he being no scholar, called to Christian, for he was learned, to see if he could pick out the meaning. So he came, and after a little laying of letters together, he found the stain to be this, Remember Lot's wife. So he read it to his fellow, after which they both concluded that was the pillar of salt into which Lot's wife was turned for her looking back with a covetous heart when she was going from Sodom for safety, which sudden and amazing sight gave them occasion of this discourse. Ah, my brother, this is a seasonable sight. It came opportunely to us after the invitation which Demas gave us to come over to view the hill Lucre, And had we gone over, as he desired us, and as thou wast inclined to do, my brother, we had, for aught I know, been made ourselves like this woman, a spectacle for those that shall come after to behold. I am sorry that I was so foolish, and am made to wonder that I am not now as Lot's wife. For wherein was the difference betwixt her sin and mine? She only looked back, and I had a desire to go see. Let grace be adored, and let me be ashamed that ever such a thing should be in mine heart. Let us take notice of what we see here, for our help, for time to come. This woman escaped one judgment, for she fell not by the destruction of Sodom, yet she was destroyed by another, as we see she's turned into a pillar of salt. True. And she may be to us both caution and example. Caution that we should shun her sin, or a sign of what judgment will overtake such as shall not be prevented by this caution. So Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, with the 250 men that perished in their sin, did also become a sign or example to others to beware. But above all, I muse at one thing, to wit, how Demas and his fellows can stand so confidently yonder to look for that treasure which this woman, but for her looking behind, after, for we read not that she stepped one foot out of the way, was turned into a pillar of salt, especially since the judgment which overtook her did make her an example within sight of where they are. For they cannot choose but see her, did they but lift up their eyes. It is a thing to be wondered at, and it argueth that their hearts are grown desperate in the case. I cannot tell who to compare them to so fitly as to them that pick pockets in the presence of the judge or that will out purses under the gallows. It is said of the men of Sodom that they were sinners exceedingly because they were sinners before the Lord, that is, in his eyesight, and notwithstanding the kindnesses that he had showed them. For the land of Sodom was now like the Garden of Eden heretofore. This, therefore, provoked him the more to jealousy, and made their plague as hot as the fire of the Lord of heaven could make it. And it is most rationally to be concluded that such, even such as these are, that shall sin in the sight, yea, and that, too, in despite of such examples that are set continually before them, to caution them to contrary, must be partakers of severest judgments. Doubtless thou hast said the truth. But what a mercy is it that neither thou, but especially I, not made myself this example. This ministereth occasion to us to thank God, to fear before him, and always to remember Lot's wife. I saw then that they went on their way to a pleasant river, which David the king called the river of God, but John the river of the water of life. 
Now their way lay just upon the bank of the river. Here, therefore, Christian and his companion walked with great delight. They also drank of the water of the river, which was pleasant and enlivening to their weary spirits. Besides, on the banks of this river, on either side, were green trees that bore all manner of fruit, and the leaves of the trees were good for medicine. With the fruit of these trees, they were also much delighted, and the leaves they eat to prevent surfeits and other diseases that are incident to those that heat their bodies by travels. On either side of the river was also a meadow, curiously beautified with lilies, and it was green all the year long. In this meadow they lay down and slept, for here they might lie down safely. When they awoke, they gathered again of the fruit of the trees, and drank again of the water of the river, and then lay down again to sleep. Thus they did several days and nights. Behold ye how these crystal streams do glide to comfort pilgrims by the highway side. The meadow green beside their fragrant smell yield dainties for them and he that can tell. What pleasant fruit, yea, leaves these trees do yield. We'll soon sell all that he may buy this field. So when they were disposed to go on, for they were not as yet at their journey's end, they ate and drank and departed. Now I beheld in my dream that they had not journeyed far, but the river and the way for a time parted, at which they were not a little sorry, yet they durst not go out of the way. Now the way from the river was rough, and their feet tender by reason of their travels. So the souls of the pilgrims were much discouraged because of the way. Wherefore, still as they went on, they wished for better way. Now a little before them was on the left hand of the road a meadow and a stile to go over into it, and that meadow is called Bypath Meadow. Then said Christian, If this meadow lieth along by our wayside, let us go over into it. Then he went to the stile to see, and behold, a path lay along by the way on the other side of the fence. It is according to my wish. Here is the easiest going. Come, good hopeful, and let us go over. But how if this path should, should lead us out of the way? It is not like that. Look, doth it not go along by the wayside? So hopeful, being persuaded by his fellow, went after him over the stile. When they were gone over and were got into the path, they found it very easy for their feet. And withal they, looking before them, espied a man walking as they did, and his name was Vain Confidence. So they called after him and asked him whither that way led. He said to the celestial gate, Look, did I not tell you so? By this you may see we are the right. So they followed, and he went before them. But behold, the night came on, and it grew very dark, so that they were behind and lost sight of him that went before. He, therefore, that went before, being confidence by name, not seeing the way before him, fell into a deep pit, which was on purpose made there by the prince of those grounds, to catch vain glorious fools withal, and was dashed in pieces with his fall. Now Christian and his fellow heard him fall, so they called to know the matter, but there was none to answer, only they heard a groaning. Where are we now? Then was his fellow silent, 
as mistrusting that he had led him out of the way. And now it began to rain and thunder and lightning in a very dreadful manner. The water rose amain. Oh, that I had kept on my way. Who could have thought that this path should have led us out of the way? I was afraid at the very first, and therefore gave you that gentle caution. I would have spoke plainer, but that you were older than I. Good brother, be not offended. I am sorry I have brought thee out of the way, and that I have put thee into such eminent danger. Pray, my brother, forgive me. I did not do it of an evil intent. Be comforted, my brother, for I forgive thee, and believe, too, that this shall be for our good. I am glad that I have with me a merciful brother, but we must not stand here. Let us try to go back again. But, good brother, let me go before. No, if you please, let me go first. That, if there be any danger, I may be first therein, because by my means we are both gone out of the way. No, you shall not go first, for your mind being troubled may lead you out of the way again. Then, for their encouragement, they heard the voice of one saying, Set thine heart toward the highway, even the way which thou wentest, turn again. By this time the waters were greatly risen, by reason of which the way of going back was very dangerous. Then I thought that it is easier going out of the way when we are in than going in when we are out. Yet they had ventured to go back. But it was so dark, and the flood was so high, that in their going back they had liked to have been drowned nine or ten times. Neither could they, with all the skill they had, get again to the stile that night. Wherefore, at last... Lighting under a little shelter, they sat down there until the daybreak. But being weary, they fell asleep. Now there was not far from the place where they lay a castle called Doubting Castle. The owner whereof was Giant Despair, and it was in his grounds that they were now sleeping. Wherefore he, getting up in the morning early and walking up and down in his fields, caught Christian and Hopeful asleep in his grounds. Then he said with a grim and surly voice, Awake! Who are you? Why are you here? We are pilgrims. We have lost our way. You have this night trespassed on me by trampling in and lying on my grounds, and therefore you must go along with me. So they were forced to go, because he was stronger than they. They also had but little to say, for they knew themselves to be in a fault. The giant, therefore, drove them before him, and put them into his castle, into a very dark dungeon, nasty and stinking to the spirits of these two men. Here then they lay from Wednesday morning until Saturday night, without one bit of bread or drop of drink or light or any to ask how they did. They were therefore here in evil case, and were far from friends and acquaintance. Now in this place, Christian had double sorrow, because it was through his unadvised counsel that they were brought into this distress. Now Giant Despair had a wife, and her name was Diffidence. So when he was gone to bed, he told his wife what he had done to wit that he had taken a couple of prisoners and cast them into his dungeon for trespassing on his grounds. What more shall I do to him? Who are they? Where did they come from? Where are they going? 
I don't know where they came from. They said they were pilgrims who lost their way. Then she counseled him after this manner. When you arise in the morning, beat them without any mercy. So when he arose, he getteth him a grievous crab-tree cudgel, and goes down into the dungeon to them, and there first falls to rating of them as if they were dogs, although they never gave him a word of distaste. Then he falls upon them and beats them fearfully, in such sort that they were not able to help themselves or to turn them upon the floor. This done, he withdraws and leaves them there to condole their misery and to mourn under their distress. So all that day they spent the time in nothing but sighs and bitter lamentations. The next night, she, talking with her husband about them further, said, They are still alive. Tell them to make an end of themselves. So when morning was come, he goes to them in a surly manner as before, and he perceived them to be very sore with the stripes that he had given them the day before. Since you are never like to come out of this place, your only way out would be forthwith to make an end of yourselves, either with knife, halter, or poison. For why should you choose life, seeing it is attended with so much bitterness? Let us go. Please, sir. With that, he looked ugly upon them, and rushing to them had doubtless made an end of them himself but that he fell into one of his fits, for he sometimes in sunshiny weather fell into fits, and lost for a time the use of his hand. Wherefore he withdrew and left them as before to consider what to do. Then did the prisoners consult between themselves whether it was best to take his counsel or no, and thus they began to discourse. Brother, what shall we do? The life that we now live is miserable. For my part, I know not whether it is best to live thus or to die out of hand. My soul chooses strangling rather than life, and the grave is more easy for me than this dungeon. Shall we be ruled by the giant? Indeed, our present condition is dreadful, and death would be far more welcome to me than thus forever to abide. But yet, let us consider... The lord of the country to which we are going hath said, Thou shalt do no murder, no, not to another man's person. Much more then are we forbidden to take his counsel to kill ourselves. Besides, he that kills another can but commit murder upon his body, but for one to kill himself is to kill body and soul at once. And moreover, my brother, thou talkest of ease in the grave, but hast thou forgotten the hell whither for certain the murderers go? For no murderer hath eternal life. And let us consider again that all the law is not in the hand of giant despair. Others, so far as I can understand, have been taken by him as well as we, and yet have escaped out of his hand. Who knows but that God that made the world may cause that giant despair may die, or that at some time or other he may forget to lock us in, or that he may in a short time have another one of his fits before us, and may lose the use of his limbs. And if ever that should come to pass again, for my part I am resolved to pluck up the heart of a man and try my utmost to get from under his hand. I was a fool that I did not try to do it before. But however, my brother, let us be patient and endure a while. The time may come that may give us a happy release 
but let us not be our own murderers. With these words, Hopeful at present did moderate the mind of his brother. So they continued together in the dark that day in their sad and doleful condition. Well, towards evening, the giant goes down into the dungeon again to see if his prisoners had taken his counsel. But when he came there, he found them alive, and truly alive was all. For now, what for want of bread and water, and by reason of the wounds they received when he beat them, they could do little but breathe. But, I say, he found them alive, at which he fell into a grievous rage, and told them, Seeing that you have disobeyed my counsel, it should be worse with you than if you had never been born. At this they trembled greatly, and I think the Christian fell into a swoon. But coming a little to himself again, they renewed their discourse about the giant's counsel, and whether yet they had best take it or no. Now Christian again seemed to be for doing it, but Hopeful made his second reply as followeth. My brother, rememberest thou not how valiant thou hast been heretofore? Apollyon could not crush thee, nor could all that thou didst hear or see or feel in the valley of the shadow of death. What hardship, terror, and amazement hast thou already gone through? And art thou now nothing but fear? Thou seest that I am in the dungeon with thee, a far weaker man by nature than thou art. And also this giant has wounded me as well as thee, and hath also cut off the bread and water from my mouth, and with thee I mourn without the light. But let us exercise a little more patience. Remember how thou playest the man at Vanity Fair, and wast neither afraid of the chain, nor cage, nor yet of bloody death. Wherefore let us at least to avoid the shame that becomes not a Christian to be found in. Bear up with patience as well as we can. Now night being come again, and the giant and his wife being in bed, she asked him concerning the prisoners. Have they taken your counsel? They are sturdy robes. They choose rather to bear all hardship than to make away themselves. Take them into the castle yard tomorrow and show them the bones and skulls of those thou hast already dispatched, and make them believe, ere a week comes to an end, thou also wilt tear them in pieces, as thou hast done to their fellows before them. So when the morning was come, the giant goes to them again, and takes them into the castle yard, and shows them, as his wife had bidden him. These were pilgrims, as you are once. And they trespassed in my grounds, as you have done. And when I thought fit, I tore them in pieces. And so, within ten days, I will do you. Go, get you down to your den again. With that, he beat them all the way thither. They lay, therefore, all day on Saturday in a lamentable case, as before. Now when night was come, and when Mrs. Diffidence and her husband, the giant, were got to bed, they began to renew their discourse of the prisoners. How is it that I could neither by my blows nor my counsel bring them to an end? I fear that they live in hope that some will come to relieve them, 
or that they have picklocks about them and by means of which they hope to escape. And sayest thou so, my dear? I will therefore search them in the morning. Well, on Saturday about midnight, they began to pray and continued in prayer till almost break of day. Now a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, break out in this passionate speech. What a fool am I thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. That is good news, brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back, and the door flew open with ease. Christian and Hopeful both came out. Then he went to the outward door that leads into the castle yard, and with his key opened that door also. After he went to the iron gate, for that must be opened too. But that lock went damnable hard, yet the key did open it. Then they thrust open the gate to make their escape with speed, but that gate as it opened made such a creaking that it waked giant despair who hastily rising to pursue his prisoners, felt his limbs to fail, for his fits took him again, so that he could by no means go after them. Then they went on and came to the king's highway, and so were safe, because they were out of his jurisdiction. Now when they were gone over the stile, they began to contrive with themselves what they should do at that stile, to prevent those that should come after from falling into the hands of giant despair. So they consented to erect a pillar and to engrave upon the side thereof this sentence. Over this stile is the way to Doubting Castle, which is kept by giant despair, who despiseth the king of the celestial country and seeks to destroy his holy pilgrims. Many, therefore, that followed after read what was written and escaped the danger. This done, they sang as follows. Out of the way we went, and then we found what t'was to tread upon forbidden ground, and let them that come after have a care. Lest heedlessness makes them as we to fare, lest they for trespassing his prisoners are, whose castles doubting, and whose names despair. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. 